Father, we are grateful for your faithfulness. The, the old hymn says, Great is thy faithfulness, O God, my Father. Uh, scripture says your faithfulness reaches to the skies. Uh, we, we tend to be up and down. We run hot and cold. You're faithful. You are the one who invented the North Star, and that is a star of stability. Uh, in the sea, on, in the wilderness, one can get lost, but on a clear night, they can look up and see that North Star and get their bearings. It's steady, it's stable, it's faithful. You are the great God who is the north star of our existence because of your faithfulness. Lamentations 3, Jeremiah said, This I recall to mind, therefore I have hope that the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. So tonight, we thank you for being such a, a faithful God. We thank you for your word and that you watch over your word to perform it. We can trust you because you're the God who has never lied. The sum of thy word is truth. We thank you because you're the God of all wisdom. And in your faithfulness, you have said to us that if we ever lack wisdom, we simply need to ask you for wisdom. And you'll give to us generously and without holding back. That's an incredible promise. We're all navigating our, our way through life. We're navigating our way through different storms and through different valleys and challenges that or beyond our ability to, to manage on our own. So we call to you, and we ask for wisdom. We ask for clarity. We ask for discernment, because we want to live not as unwise men, but as wise men, making the most of our time, because the days are evil. We've never seen days like this before in our lifetime. So we desperately need you. Remind us tonight of what is true. Remind us of who you are. Remind us that you're in charge and that one day Jesus is coming back and he's going to clean up all this nonsense. And he'll rule and he'll reign forever. That's the blessed hope. It's the great hope. Encourage your hearts with this, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.
So tonight we are in 2 Peter chapter 3, and Peter has been taking on these false teachers. He's been taking on their attacks, and he's been taking on their accusations with uh, great boldness. As, as we've said before, this, this is a heavy book. Uh, it's, it's a time where there was great persecution uh, in the church. It, it's a t- First Peter was written just a few years before because the persecution was so great under Nero. The persecution is still going on when Peter writes Second Peter. Um, that four years of persecution under Nero, Paul will be beheaded. Peter is going to, is going to shortly die after writing this. Uh, he said the, at the end of chapter 1 that the Lord had made it clear that he didn't have many days left. Uh, and he was crucified, tradition tells us, by Nero after he had to watch his wife be crucified. And Peter was crucified up down because, upside down because he wasn't worthy to be crucified in the same way as the Lord. So it, it was a time of uh, intense persecution, intense opposition to the gospel. Kind of reminds me of what, what's going on in our day. It, it used to be that, well, let's just say this. Many of us can remember when things were different. Not perfect, but different. Um, as in the book, The Closing of the American Mind, Alan Bloom wrote that book. How many years ago? 25, 30 years ago. Bloom, Jewish academic, talked about why the United States had enjoyed such favor. He was writing from a secular viewpoint. One of the things he said is that every home had a Bible. Even if people were not Christians, even if people were not churchgoers, they had a Bible. And the Bible was prominently displayed somewhere. It was on a bookshelf. It was on a coffee table. It was, perhaps it was never read. But a Bible was in the home. Those days are over. Those days are gone. It's the exception. Now, what we're dealing with now, we're getting a taste of what most Christians historically have dealt with over the last 2,000 years, which is persecution. We're just starting to see it. But it is ramping up, and we see this and we sense it. It's not like North Korea or like what happens to Christians in China or Iran, but we're getting a taste of it. And it makes us think about our children and their future. It makes us think about our grandkids and their future. And it can become uh, overwhelming because it's not going to get better. If you read what Jesus said in Matthew 24, it's going to get worse. So once again, I'm just here tonight to encourage you. But the fact of the matter is, Jesus said it's going to get worse. He said in the last days, lawlessness will increase. And if anything is increasing in our culture, it's lawlessness. At the highest levels, where laws should be made, there's lawlessness. Where laws shouldn't be made, laws are being made. It's just all upside down. 
it's easy to lose hope. Uh, what they were dealing with was much, much worse than what we're dealing with. It would be easy in that situation when people are dying for their faith and being turned into human torches on a nightly basis by Nero, it would be easy to lose heart and to lose hope. He doesn't want them to do that. Now, once again, in chapter 3, he's going to go after the false teachers. And he's going to go after them. He, he, he just took them to the cleaners in chapter 2. But he's not done yet because this is his last will and testament. And he wants these Christians, in whatever time he has remaining, he's pinning this letter because he does not want them to lose heart. He doesn't want them to lose hope. He wants them to remember certain things. The danger of the false teachers is that they say false things about God. And if you base your life on false truths about God, if you base your life on lies about God taught by false teachers, you have nothing to stand firm on as things get worse and worse. You actually have no basis for hope. What is happening in 2 Peter 3 is that he hones in on an accusation that the false teachers are making that basically robs any Christian on the face of the earth of hope. So tonight, as we look at 2 Peter 3, let me give you an outline. We're going to, uh, number one, we're going to look at the accusation of the false teachers in chapter 3, verses 3 and 4. Then we're going to look at his response. He's got uh, three shots of ammo where he responds to this false accusation. So our second point, this is a little confusing actually, uh, but if you've been here for a while, you're not surprised at all that this would be confusing. Uh, it's sort of how I put outlines together. Um, so number one would be the accusation of the false teachers. Number two would be the first ammo shot in response. That would be verses one and two. Then our third point is the second ammo shot, which is in chapter three, verses five through seven. And then number four is the third shot of ammo in response to the false accusation, which is in verses eight and nine. Now, let's read the passage. Then we'll come back and break it up. Second, Peter 3, verse 1. This is now, beloved, the second letter I am writing to you in which I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. I mean, when I'm dead and gone, I want you to have this in your brain. That you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets, those would be Old Testament prophets, and the commandment of the Lord and Savior, Jesus, spoken by your apostles. That's the rest of scripture that was being written by the apostles. Verse three, know this first of all, that in the last days, you say, are we in the last days? We've been in the last days since Jesus ascended to the Father in the book of Acts. These are all the last days. Uh, when's the Lord returning? 
Can't tell you when, but we can say this, we're closer now than we were yesterday. How's that? That's about as um, accurate as you can get, because no man knows the hour. Know this first of all, that in the last days, mockers, scoffers, will come with their mocking, following after their own lust, and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. Everything's the same. For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and by water through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. So everything doesn't continue the same, obviously. Through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. But by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. So the accusation is in verses three and four. He tells us that in the last days, mockers, scoffers, those who don't believe in the one true God, those who don't believe in the authority of scripture, these mockers, these scoffers will, um, will come and they'll mock because what they're really following after is not the Lord. We've said this, these false teachers are stealth. They're in the church, they look like they're real, but they're not real. They're not true followers of Christ because they follow after their own lust the lust for power, the lust for money, the lust for sex. Jesus said in John 10, my sheep hear my voice and they follow me. So it all comes down to who are you following? That's the question in, in our lives. Who am I following? Am I following the shepherd or am I following my own desires which I'm covering up and trying to look like a believer? Uh, so the accusation that is being made when they say, where is the promise of his coming, is that the Lord is not going to return. Let's go to uh, book of Acts. So what you have in Acts 1, it says in, well, we'll just pick it up at verse 1, what Luke has to say here. The first account I composed, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven. That's important. So he's been to the cross, he's died, buried, he rose on the third day. He's appeared to over 500 at one time. He's appeared to all the apostles. He's, okay. Um, until the day when he was taken up to heaven, after he had by the Holy Spirit given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. 
To these he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. Gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which he said you heard of from me. For John baptized with water, you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you're restoring the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it's not for you to know times or epics which the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. That's going to happen in Acts 2. You shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria, even to the remotest part of the earth. Here you go, verse 9. After he had said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And they were gazing intently into the sky while he was going. Behold, two men in white clothing, while he was going, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. They also said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. Jesus is going to return. Um, this is the message. It's always been the message. And for people that are suffering and being persecuted and having family members killed and just horrific things happening, this is the message. Jesus is coming back. And until Jesus comes back, he will sustain us. He will provide for us. He will make a way for us. He's never promised an easy life. Acts 14.22 says, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. That's, it's in the scripture. Uh, but false teachers, especially false teachers today, all they teach is that God always wants you healthy. God always wants you wealthy. God wants you to have an easy prosperous life, he, that's not what the scriptures teach. Uh, the, the scriptures tell us that all who desire to live godly lives will be persecuted in Christ Jesus. Now, there are levels of persecution, but um, this is the normal Christian life. We've had an easy ride in the United States for 200 years, but it's changing and it's turning So we just need to have a heads up what's coming. Um, when you're living a difficult life, when there's persecution, you need hope. Well, how do you answer the accusations? Because the Lord had not returned. Here we are 2,000 later and the Lord has not returned. So the mockers and the scoffers say, where is the promise of his coming? So now Peter is going to give them three shots of ammo to put things in perspective. So let's look at the first ammo shot, which would be on the outline, number two. Let's look in verses one and two. So he says this. This is now, beloved, the second letter I'm writing to you, which I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder, that you should remember the words spoken beforehand, okay? There's some words that are really, really important here that he wants them to remember. The question is, what words? Well, he, he delineates it for us. The words spoken by the holy prophets, who would that be? 
That would be the prophets of the Old Testament. Then the commandment of the Lord Jesus and Savior, the Lord and Savior, and then spoken by your apostles. So, so he comes back and he says, as you're suffering, and you've got to put up these false teachers that say he's not coming back. The entire Bible is about him coming back. Uh, Isaiah talked about his return at the end. Um, Jeremiah, it's everywhere. Uh, it's in Daniel. So we could spend a lot of time on this, and there's a lot of passages that are wonderful passages, but let's just take a quick look at Daniel 12, because in the second half of Daniel, the Lord reveals to Daniel what's going to happen in the last days. And he laid it out for him, and it was overwhelming to Daniel. And at times, you'll read in the scripture that Daniel got physically ill, that he had to take to his bed, because there was, there was such, such a weight of what was going to happen uh, in God's plan for the ages. Not for his time, but for the times that we're, very, very, that we're in and we're getting closer to the return of Christ. So in Daniel 12, now at that time, Michael, the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people, will arise. And there will be a time of distress such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. And at that time, your people, everyone who is found written in the book, will be rescued. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake, these to everlasting life, but the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. My gosh, that's Revelation 20. Is it not? Let's flip over to Revelation 20, which was written by one of the apostles, John, who was on uh, exile on the island of Patmos. And in Revelation 20, verse 11, John says, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne. The books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. Same thing Daniel's saying. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Uh, one day the, the world will come to an end. And it won't be because of climate change. And it won't be because of global warming. And it won't be because someone accidentally pushed the button and started the nuclear war. It's going to be because in the fullness of time, God says it's time. That's how it's going to be. And nothing can change that. It's fixed. It's set. There is a prophetic calendar. It's more exact than an atomic clock. And we're on schedule to the nanosecond. Nothing can thwart God's plan. There's a plan for the ages. And it gives great comfort. If your name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Because that's the key to salvation, is knowing the Lord Jesus Christ and trusting in him as the Savior who died in your place for your sins. 
That's the gospel. Now, uh, look at Matthew 25. Because he, he says, first of all, this was prophesied by the holy prophets. And then he says the Lord Jesus spoke of this. So let's see what the Lord Jesus had to say. And again, he talked about it often. But if you look at Matthew 25, he talks about what's going to happen at the end. And they're saying, where is the promise of his coming? Well, count on it. He's coming. And here's what Jesus had to say uh, in Matthew 25 about his own return. Verse 31 But when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them from one another, as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Go down to verse 41. Then he will say to those on the left, Depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. Now, I, I read some of these verses last week. I'm reading them again today because we're living in a time where outside the church and inside the church, the big mantra is no judgment, no judgment, no judgment. Don't judge me, don't judge me. Judgment is coming for all of us. And the only way to escape judgment is through the blood of Christ. He who knew no sin became sin on our behalf. And when Jesus died for us, when we trust in him, the righteousness of Christ is transferred into our account. That's how we're saved. That's how we have eternal life. These false teachers are saying, you don't need to worry about it. And if you've been with us through this study, you know that the false teachers denied that he was coming. And if he isn't coming, then there's not going to be any judgment so you can live any way that you want to live. And we're living in a time where Christians are being told by false teachers who publish books that twist scripture. There is a, a, a book out right now. Um, there's at least there's several of them. But books by those who are practicing homosexuals who are Christians who take the six major passages of homosexuality in the scripture and basically turn those passages upside down to say, this is fine and God's good with this. He's not good with it. God is not good with sexual immorality. Whether it's homosexual or heterosexual or bisexual, what he's good with is a man and woman married. That's the only sexual relationship that he approves. You say, that's very narrow. It's very narrow. <laughs> but Jesus said, broad is the road that leads to destruction. Narrow is the gate that leads to life, and few are those who find it. Uh, the point is, stuff that was not being taught in the church, in the Christian world, 30 years ago, is now being taught in the church. I remember taking a doctoral class at Dallas Seminary in 1982, and it was on, it, it was on contemporary moral issues, and we were reading stuff that 
different writers from an absolute liberal perspective in regards to the scripture were writing justifying sexual immorality, homosexuality, and it was so far out that, I mean, guys were laughing. The, how they would take the text and the things they would say about a text, I mean, it was, it was laughable. It was a joke. Now, you might have people in your family that they're gonna quote this stuff back to you. Why? Because there are false teachers who, false, who teach false books in the name of Christ. And, and you're talking about people's souls. You're talking about eternity here. So this is where we are. Uh, now, here's the good news. Christ is going to return. That gives me great hope. We live in a world that is secular. Uh, secular education, secular government, secular, everything secular. Uh, the secular perspective believes that this is the only world that there is. That's pretty much it. So if you don't remember anything else about secularism, know this. Secularism teaches this is the only world that there is. So lie, steal, cheat, do whatever you can do, because it doesn't matter because there's no judgment. But there is a judgment. This is the only world that there is. Jesus said there's another world, and it's coming to a theater new year, new year. It's coming. Uh, so what does that do? That gives me great hope. It gives me great hope if I'm in the midst of persecution and they persecute me and torture me and beat me until I die. Well, you know what? You've just done me a favor. Because to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. See, that if... When you know the Lord and when you know God is sovereign, this puts a whole different spin on everything that you go through. You find out you've got stage four cancer. And the prosperity teachers say, oh, God wants you to be well. God wants you to be healthy. Well, you read 2 Corinthians 12 and Paul said, <clears throat> God gave me a thorn in the flesh. I asked him three times to remove it. And God said, yes, I'll remove it, Paul. It's my will. I, Benny Hinn told me it's my will to, to pray for you and to have you healed. He had a thorn in the flesh. We don't know what it was, but it was something he wanted God to remove. It was, we don't know what it was, but it was horrific. He says, three times I asked the Lord to take it away from me. And three times the Lord said, no. Because God wanted him to become weak. God works strangely. Does he not? For when I am weak, Paul said, then I am strong. Because you see, I'm not trusting in myself, but I'm trusting in him. Uh, by the way, we're all going to get healed. But it may not be in this life. But when you take your last breath, I'm going to tell you, you're healed forever in Christ. That's the true message of the gospel. Um, Christ is coming back. The world is going to end Nathan Busenich says this in regard to the teaching of the New Testament. He says, the hope of Christ's coming was of paramount importance for the early church. In fact, its certainty was so real that the first century believers who were under great persecution would greet one another with the term Maranatha, meaning Lord, come quickly. 
Instead of being frightened by the possibility, they clung to it as the culmination of everything they believed. Not surprisingly, the New Testament reflects the intense anticipation by re referencing Jesus' return, whether directly or indirectly, in every New Testament book except Philemon and 3 John. Very, very short books. It's everywhere in the New Testament. Everywhere. Because it's what gave him hope. So that's his first ammo shot. Um, let's go to the next ammo shot, which is actually number three in our outline. The second ammo shot is found in verses five through seven back in Second Peter uh, chapter three. I, I want to, uh, before I do that, I want to reference something that is important. If, going, going back to false teachers. The false teachers, as we've said before, they look like sheep. But they're not sheep, they're wolves. And they have a false gospel. We're hearing a lot these days about a woman named Paula White. And she has just been named as the spiritual advisor. She's head of the White House, the White House's Faith and Opportunity Initiative. And when you see a bunch of pastors gathered with Trump in the Oval Office, you'll see this short blonde, that's Paula White. And she's on television and all this kind of stuff. Um, so a day after this announcement was made, which was a couple of days ago, this is from Joe Carter and the Gospel Coalition. A day after the announcement was made that she was appointed to this post by Trump, White's ministry emailed supporters under her name asking them to donate $3,600. The email states, during this season, something so supernatural will take place that will literally shift your life in a very positive way if you have ears to hear and connect to the prophetic movement, uh, moment. Friend, you must stay connected to me during this prophetic season. Why? Why would we stay connected to you? Well, I'm a pastor of a church. Yeah? Well, you shouldn't be a pastor of a church. Well, because I teach thousands of men and women all over the world. Yeah? Well, you shouldn't be teaching men. Because of what the scripture says. White's email says that to receive the blessing, the supporters must follow her instructions. This is very important. It says, friend, you must understand the instruction that follows in order to align yourself with this suddenly, all caps. You cannot ignore the prophetic and apostolic instruction that follows. Prophetic and apostolic instruction? Well, that's in the scriptures. Paula White is none of the scriptures. You are a spirit being. And I must be sensitive to the leading of the Spirit of God. This is how he commissioned me to process this to you. Uh-huh. And how do we know that? 
The additional instructions include fasting for three days and a prophetic demand to give to her sacrificially. <laughs> They're dead serious about this stuff, and people watch this on Christian, quote unquote, Christian television. White supporters are required to give 3,600, 300, or if you are limited severely, $70. She's going to tap you whatever way she can tap you. White provides the dollar amounts based on the number of animals sacrificed by a follower of God in 2 Chronicles 29, verses 27 to 36. Oh, of course, how could I have forgotten that? <laughs> He's playing gymnastics with scripture. Just making stuff up to roll the money in. I might have mentioned this a few weeks ago. Joe Carter did another expose, Nine Things You Should Know About Prosperity Gospel Preacher Paula White. Now, the reason I'm bringing this up is that you've got all these evangelical pastors in the White House with her, and she is the de facto head. And she just came out with a book last week, and it was kind of shocking how many solid biblical pastors endorsed the book. And about half of them pulled it the next day. Um, Carter says, here are nine things you should know about Paula White, her influence in her ministries. Uh, she was saved at 18, went to a Pentecostal Bible college founded by evangelist T.O. Lowry, uh, whose doctrine is very, very iffy. Uh, White was married and had a child when she met Randy White, an associate pastor at the church she was attending. Randy was also married and had three children. Paula and Randy divorced their spouses and married each other in 1989. Now just stop and think about that for a minute. There were two families that were busted up because a pastor saw this blonde in his church and they both divorced their spouses leave their families, and they get married. And then they become co-pastors of a church. Something's wrong somewhere. That doesn't pass the smell test. That's just, um, that's just full of sexual immorality. There's no repentance. There's no brokenness. There's no sorrow over sin. In 1991, two years later, Paul and Randy started a church called South Tampa Christian Center. Because the church only had five members and could not afford to pay the whites, uh, they lived on government assistance and the kindness of others. By 2006, the church, now dubbed Without Walls International Church, claimed to have 20,000 people, making it the seventh largest congregation in the United States. A year later, the couple announced to the church that they were getting a divorce. But here's another divorce. And then she starts getting really well known because of different ministries. She's on TV. Um, she winds up marrying a guy named Jonathan Kane, keyboardist for the rock band Journey. Um, she makes a trip to Michael Jackson's home 
Neverland in 2003 to provide spiritual counsel after he was arrested on charges of child molestation. Um, other prosperity teachers are boosting her ministry. Um, Oh, this is interesting. White and her former husband, Randy, were part of two congressional investigations, one in 2004 and another in 2007, of Prosperity Gospel Ministries. Now, just because you're investigated by the IRS doesn't mean you're guilty. We need to be honest here. The investigations uncovered no chargeable tax offenses, but they raised questions about her ministry's finances. For example, between 2004 and 2007, the church paid a total of $2.755 million in compensation to their relatives, including Paula's son and Randy's two children, father and sister. So everyone showed up at the family reunion on that deal. <laughs> Randy and Paula also reportedly received $5 million a year in compensation from their church and purchased $3.5 million condo in Trump Tower in New York City. Yeah, there you go. Living the good life. Um, when, when you look at Second Peter, you see that passage there in verse 3 that they will follow after their own lust. That, that can be sexual lust, it can be lust for power, it can be lust for money. But this, this is not the description of what a spiritual leader in the church should be. It just isn't. Uh, wrong, wrong teaching always results in wrong living. But the closer you get to Christ, it's going to come out in your life. And things which you used to do, you don't do. And there is a maturity in Christ. And there is a desire for holiness and a desire to be conformed to the image of Christ. And the old things pass away and all things become new. And things that you used to do, you don't do anymore. You're growing up and you're maturing in Christ. And you don't, um, you don't rationalize sin. There's not a double life. There's a consistent life. Let's, let's go to the... Uh, let's go to the... Third point, which is um, verses five through seven. For when they maintain this, uh, and what, what was he referencing? Well, let's go back to verse four. Saying, where is the promise of his coming? And every, not every false teacher says that Christ isn't returning. There are different types of false teachers with different types of false doctrine. Okay. But these guys were saying, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. For when they maintain this, that everything has been the same from day one, it escapes their notice. That could be translated, they willfully ignore that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and by water, through which 
the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. But by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. So Christ is going to return, and there will be judgment. So what's being said in those verses? Michael Green sums it up really, really well. I mean, that's a mouthful in there, but he sums it up well. He says, there is a neat parallelism in these three verses. He's speaking of five and six and seven. By his word and by means of water, God created the world. That's verse five. By his word and by means of water, he destroyed it. Verse six. By his word and by means of time, he will destroy it in future judgment, verse 7, by fire. Um, so the question is, is all this, did it really happen? And is it going to happen? Is, is the world really going to be destroyed by fire? Uh, did it, was it really destroyed by water? Uh, what he's talking about is the worldwide flood in Genesis, I came across an interesting article by John Morris. Um, the title of the article is, Why Does Nearly Every Culture Have a Tradition of a Global Flood? And he quotes 1 Corinthians 1.20. Where is the wise, where is the scribe, where is the disputer of this world? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? And then he writes, one of the strongest evidences for the global flood, which annihilated all people on earth except for Noah and his family, has been the ubiquitous presence of flood legends in the folklore of people groups from around the world. And the stories are also similar. Local geography and cultural aspects may be present, but they all seem to be telling the same story. Over the years, I've collected more than 200 of these stories, originally reported by various missionaries, anthropologists, and ethnologists. While the differences are not always trivial, the common essence of the story is instructive and compiled as below. In these different cultural flood stories from all over the world, he has some criteria. Number one, is there a favored family? The Bible says no one is family. Is there a favored family? 88% of the legends say there was. Were they forewarned? 66% say they were. Is flood due to the wickedness of man? 66% say they were. Is catastrophe only a flood? 95% says it was only a flood, no matter where you go in the world. Was the flood global? Global, 95% says yes. Is survival due to a boat? 70% say yes. Wherever you go in the world, in those cultures, they have flood stories, there's a consistency. Were the animals also saved? 67% of the legends of the stories say yes, not legends, but of the stories that were passed on from generation to generation. Did animals play any part? 73% say yes. Did survivors land on a mountain? 57% say yes. Uh, were the birds sent out? 35% say yes. Was the rainbow mentioned? Down to 7%. Did, did the survivors offer a sacrifice? 13%. Were specifically eight persons saved? 9%, the more exact you get 
it drops off. But in the big picture of the story of the worldwide flood with Genesis, uh, Noah and his family, there's an amazing consistency. Um, because the scripture tells us what happened in the past. We, we've got a big problem with, with God and with creation. Um, I've mentioned this book to you before by John Lennox, the professor emeritus at Oxford, who is a committed Christian. Can science explain everything? Uh, these mockers were saying everything has remained the same since the very, very beginning. That's what science says today. Um, and they deny the existence of miracles. He quotes here from Richard Dawkins, and Dawkins says this, the 19th century is the last time when it was possible for an educated person to admit to believing in miracles like the virgin birth without embarrassment. When pressed, many educated Christians are too loyal to deny the virgin birth and resurrection, but it embarrasses them because their rational minds know that it is absurd, so they would much rather not be asked. So the virgin birth, the resurrection of Christ, Noah, a worldwide flood. He goes on and says, Dawkins here echoes the famous contention of the Enlightenment philosopher David Hume that miracles are a violation of the laws of nature. I've read this book to you before, sections. He shows how many Nobel Prize winners between 1900 and 2000 were Christians, over 60% of them, Bible-believing Christians. Um, David Hume said miracles are a violation of the laws of nature. And then he talks about the laws of nature and what they are. Um, let us remind ourselves of the perspective of contemporary science and its thinking about the laws of nature. Since science, since scientific laws embody cause-effect relationships, scientists nowadays do not regard them as merely capable of describing what has happened in the past. Uh, provided we are not working at the quantum level, such laws can successfully predict what will happen in the future with such accuracy that, for example, the orbits of communication satellites can be precisely calculated, the moon and the Mars landings are possible. Many scientists are therefore convinced that the universe is a closed system of cause and effect. In light of this, it's understandable that they resent and reject the idea that some god could arbitrarily intervene and alter, suspend, reverse, or otherwise violate these laws of nature. To them, that would seem to contradict the immutability of those laws and thus overturn the very basis of our science, scientific understanding of the universe. I'm going to read you an illustration. Are you guys still here? Okay. They've got a closed system. And what he says earlier in the book... How could 60% of Nobel Prize winners be Christians and 40% not be Christians? It all goes down to your worldview. Are you a theist, God exists, or an atheist, God doesn't exist? That's what it all comes down to. It comes down to your presuppositions. Um, he uses this illustration uh, that in regard to miracles. He says, the second objection to miracles is that now we know that there are laws of nature and can, now that we know there are laws, laws of nature and can describe them, miracles are simply impossible. This is Hume's famous objection. So Noah, the worldwide flood could not have happened. The resurrection, uh, Jonah and the whale could not have happened. 
However, he says, I don't think this objection holds water. I like that pun. <laughs> Let me illustrate. Suppose this week I put $10 in the drawer of my desk. The following week I put in another 20 And then the week after another 10 is added and the drawer is closed and locked. The laws of arithmetic allow me to predict that the next time I open my drawer, I'll find $40. But suppose when I next open the drawer, I find just a single $10 bill. What shall I conclude? That the laws of arithmetic have been broken? Certainly not. I might more reasonably conclude that some thief has broken not the laws of arithmetic, but the laws of the land and stolen $30 out of my drawer. One thing it would be ludicrous to claim is that the existence of laws of arithmetic make it impossible to believe in the existence of such a thief or the possibility of his intervention. This is called common sense. This is called logic. <laughs> Quite the reverse is true. It is the normal working of all those laws that cause us to believe in the existence of the thief and his activity in my house. Uh, he goes on and says this, one more paragraph. Christians do not deny the laws of nature. In fact, we believe that God put the laws in place. On the contrary, they regard the laws of nature as descriptions of those regularities and cause-effect relationships which have been built into the universe by its creator and according to which it normally operates. If we did not know them, we should never recognize a miracle if we saw one. That's profound. If we did not know them, the regularities and cause and effect relationships, we would never, if we didn't know them, we'd never recognize a miracle if we saw one. The crucial difference between the Christian view and a worldview that denies the existence of God is that Christians do not believe that this universe is a closed system of cause and effect. They believe that it is open to the causal activity of its creator, God. There you go. That's what we're dealing with in our modern educational system. Um, which leads us to the next point, point four. This would be the third shot of ammo in verses eight and nine, back in Second Peter. He says, but do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved. That with the Lord, one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. So here's what you've got here. Um, I like the way Martin Lloyd-Jones put it. Lloyd-Jones says he's making two points here. The first one is that when he, when he makes this analogy that in regard to the Lord that a day is like a thousand years. Here's what he's saying. Number one, God is altogether above time. God is altogether above time. Yet secondly, God, although he is above time, works in time. So God is God. God is sovereign. Time is a gadget on, on God's Swiss army knife. He's not controlled by time. He owns time. He invented time. God is eternal. There's a concept called the aseity of God, the self-existence of God. Where did God come from? God's always been. Yeah, that's fine, but 
When did he begin? He's always been. He's always been and he always will be. We're created. He's not created. He is the creator. So he is sovereign. He is above all things. He's not like us. Yet he works in time. Um, to us, a thousand years seems like a long time. To the Lord, the analogy is it's, it's a day. So conceivably, Jesus came, was born of a virgin, went to the, lived a sinless life, went to the cross, died, was buried, rose again after three days, and then after 40 days, ascended to the Lord in heaven is at the right hand of the Father. That's Acts chapter 1, as we began tonight. According to what is being said in verse 8, don't let this one fact escape your notice that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years, also a thousand years like one day. The ministry of Jesus on earth to the Lord was two days ago. Because he doesn't measure time like we measure it. God's all about timing. We face different things. In life. This is, we're dealing with this stuff. But you know how else we're dealing with this stuff? We're dealing with this stuff because we have challenges in our lives. We have hard things in our lives. We have, um, we have sufferings in our lives. It may not be persecution in a North Korean prison camp, but if you've got stage four cancer, you're, you're dealing with a tribulation. And Acts 14.22 says, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Not some, not few, many. Tribulations tend to come in waves. In, in Psalm 42, the psalmist says, all your waves have rolled over me. It, it's, it's unique, like waves have sets. It seems like tribulations, trials, adversities come in sets. You, you get hit by one and then you get back on your feet and you get hit by something else and then you get hit by something else and you get overwhelmed. And we start asking questions, Lord, why is this happening? This is why you have books in the Bible like Job. Job was the most righteous man on the face of the earth. What Job didn't realize is that something was going on in the heavenly places and that the ultimate false teacher, Satan, was basically accusing God that the only reason that Job loves you is because you've been so good to him. And so Job was going to be tested. But God put parameters on what Satan could do because Satan is not equal to God. And Satan has to obey the parameters that God puts in place. So Satan cannot touch a believer without going through the Father. He can't bypass the boundaries. So there are tests that are going to occur. Job is going to be tested. The adversities that come into our lives are testings. James 1, count it joy. Don't feel it as joy. Think it. Count is something you do with your mind. Count it as joy. Consider it as joy when you encounter various trials. Watch this. Knowing there's your mind. You've got to take a step back from the trials. And instead of getting bitter at God, you've got to take a step back and say, Lord, show me what you're up to here. I know you're at work. This, this is not blind chance. You own my life. You have a plan for my life. You take a step back and you consider it as joy when you encounter various trials. Cancer, loss of a job, loss of retirement, uh, loss of a marriage. Count it joy, think it as joy when you encounter various trials. How can you possibly do that? Knowing, knowing what? 
that the testing of your faith produces what? Endurance. endurance. And that endurance might have its perfect result that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Uh, anyone who was ever used by God in the scripture was tested. And God did test his men by taking them into the wilderness. We've talked about this before. So it can be a wilderness of suffering. It can be a, a, a wilderness of unemployment. It can be a wilderness of health issues. It can be a wilderness of being by yourself and being lonely. But God puts people in the wilderness and things happen that are not fair and they don't make sense and would cause us to question God. So Joseph at 17 is sold into slavery by his brothers. And when you're sold into slavery back then to the Egyptians, you'll be fortunate to be alive at 25. Because they didn't build those pyramids by giving those guys workman's comp. That was, I mean, that was a death sentence. His life was over. He had to be asking the question, why? And then God gave him favor in Potiphar's house. And before you know it, he went from the lowest place and he's running this great estate. And God had been so good to him. But now, Potiphar's wife, we don't know her name, I like to call her Predator, she keeps hitting on Joseph day after day. He won't sleep with her. He won't sleep with her. She gets mad. She makes a false accusation. It's been around a long time. Makes a false accusation about what he did to her, and he winds up again in jail. Was that fair? No. No. He did the honorable thing. Sometimes you will be, you will be set back for doing what's right. Yet the favor of the Lord was with him in jail and he had favor with the chief jailer and before you know it, he's running the whole jail. And then these two guys are in jail and they have dreams and Joseph interprets their dreams. One of them's gonna die, one of them's gonna live and he says to the guy who's gonna live, he says, don't forget me. And what does the guy do? He forgets him for two years. Why did he forget him? Because God made him forget because it wasn't time. At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Humble yourselves into the mighty hand of God that at the right time he may exalt you. He was waiting for two years, falsely accused in prison, and then suddenly Pharaoh had a dream. Why did Pharaoh have a dream? Because God said, hey, Pharaoh, wuss, dream this. <laughs> You're the most powerful man on the face of the earth, but the king's heart is like channels of water in the hands of the Lord. He turns it whatever way it wishes. It was time. So you dream this, freaked him out, gets all his guys together, I can't, make, I can't figure it out. All of a sudden this guy remembers, oh, there was this Hebrew guy and he interpreted, get him up here. They clean him up, running through a car wash, nice suit. He shows up, Joseph interprets the dream. He said, I can't do that, there's a God in heaven, da, da, da. And he tells him exactly this is what this means. There's gonna be seven years of prosperity. There's gonna be seven years of famine. You better appoint someone to administrate this and put away 20% during the seven good years so you'll get through the rough years. And he looks at Joseph and says, you're the man. In 45 minutes, he was promoted from the lowest place to the highest place in the world. Because not from the east, nor from the west, nor from the desert comes promotion, but promotion comes from God. Psalm 75. Now, why do I say that? Because inevitably, there are guys listening to this that are trying to figure out what's happened to my life. I lost my job. I lost this 
I lost this business I poured my life into. I've lost my retirement. I lost, I'm starting over and I'm 50. I'm starting over and I'm 35 or I'm 95 or wherever you are, you're finished, you're done, it's over. There's no way out. As Ray Steadman used to say, resurrection power always works best in a graveyard. So God allows our plans to die. Proverbs 16. The mind of man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. Nothing wrong with making plans, just make sure you write them in pencil. Because God will more than likely change your plans. Don't love your plans more than you love him. It goes on and says in Proverbs 16, there is a way that seems right to a man, but the end thereof is destruction. When God interrupts our plans, it's a mercy because he's got something better that we can't see. But we're gonna have to lose something in order to get there because God works strangely. I was recently talking to a young guy who was telling me that he was very, 35, he was telling me how concerned he was about his resume because it's so crazy, because he's done all this different stuff and there doesn't seem to be a lot of correlation and makes sense. And he had had a startup company, it was his latest thing, that got that close to being bought and he would have been in great shape and all the investors, and it, it fell apart at the end and it, it's gone. And that's the last thing on his resume. And it doesn't really fit with everything else that he's ever done. And he was just telling me that I, I don't, I mean, I've got nothing to show. I mean, this is my resume and it's, nobody's gonna, this, this makes no sense to anybody. And I said to him, I said, you're finished. <laughs> it's over and he laughed because see in his heart he knows it's not over but it sure feels that way because he was into about his fifth month without a paycheck after three years of not having a paycheck because he didn't take any money from the startup and he's married and got a little boy and he's dying nobody's going to want me and then a few weeks later he checks out this opportunity and so for the last couple of weeks I've been getting texts from him and calls two, three, four times a week. This is unbelievable. This is unbelievable. This is right in my wheelhouse. This is perfect. Every time I turn around I'm seeing God's favor. Every time I see it's, it's using all my gifts, it's using all my skills in fact, what he told me when he talked to the top person about hiring him, they looked at everything he'd done and said, this is incredible because this is a multifaceted position and you hit it on every count. Instead of disqualifying him through the sovereignty of God, it qualified him. This is real life stuff. But you go through a lot of pain to get there to learn the lessons that God can be trusted. You don't listen to the false teachers, you listen to the word of God. Psalm 57, two and three. David, it looked like his life was over. He's surrounded by Saul's soldiers. There's no escape. He says, I will cry unto God most high. To God who accomplishes all things for me, he will send from heaven and save me. And one of the old Puritan pastors translated that I will cry to God most high, to God who is the transactor of all my affairs. 
He will send from heaven and save me. God's all about timing. You say, what does this have to do with this? I'll tell you what it has to do with it. Christ is coming back. And if you know Christ, you have a great hope. You'll be with him forever. It can't, it can't even be described. Eye has not seen, ear has not heard what God has prepared for those who love him. It's going to be unbelievable. The earth will be destroyed by fire, but there will be a new heavens, so there will be a new earth, there will be a new Jerusalem, and we'll live on it. We'll live here. The Garden of Eden will be restored forever. That's what's coming. That's the truth. That's the reality. But, but I might be on, I mean, I'm just trying to get through this week. I'm trying to make it to the end of the week. I'm trying to pay my mortgage, okay? You got a savior who will sustain you. He knows that. He knows everything about you. He knows what you need. He knows where you're short. He know, he's a provider. He's a savior. This is what he does. But I've been waiting so long. This 35-year-old guy had been waiting for months and months, and he was desperate. Let me give you three principles from Obadiah Sedgwick on God's timing as I finish. Remember, God is above time, but God works in time. So a lot of times when you read through Psalms, you'll see a very disturbing word called wait. The Lord is good to those who wait for him. That doesn't mean you're passive. You go about your responsibilities, but sometimes God hems you in. And the reason God's hemming you in is that he's setting things up for you but it's not time yet. I just thought of a verse, Isaiah 64, 4. No eye has seen a God like thee who works for those who wait for him. So Joseph had responsibilities in prison. Do your responsibilities to the best of your ability. Whatever God's given you, you're not passive. You don't sit on the couch all day and watch ESPN. You're out there. You're doing your work but you're trusting God to make sense out of your life. Does that make sense? It makes all kinds of sense. While you're waiting, God's working and God is setting stuff up. Three principles from Sedgwick on when God calls us to wait. Number one, in your life, God will take time, but he will not waste time. In your life, God will take time, but he will never waste time. He's setting things up for your good. Number two, God's delays are not necessarily God's denials. God's delays are not necessarily God's denials. Sometimes when we're suffering, God takes things away. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. There are season when, seasons when God takes things away because we're being tested. And muscle, the, the muscle of faith and trusting God is being developed. You won't be there forever it has a beginning, a middle, and an end, that season, that chapter. And then God will bring you out. But there are lessons to be learned. And you look around and your friends, they, which, which, which you have lost, things that you don't have, they have. And that doesn't seem right. It doesn't seem fair. But the Bible says no good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. If there's something legitimate that you don't have that you have lost, that doesn't mean you'll never have it. It just means it's, you don't have it now because it's not good for you now. But when it's good for you, God indeed may give it to you because no good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. 
this make sense? It's just not good now. So God's delays are not necessarily God's denials. You may have it in six months or in a year. This 35-year-old guy was out of job and all of a sudden, and he didn't, you know, he thought maybe God was against him, and now he's sensing the favor of God every time he turns around. Number three, when God delays a mercy, he often doubles the mercy. When God delays a mercy, he often doubles the mercy. Uh, Isaiah 61, 7. And then I'd give to you uh, Job. You read the end of Job, he lost everything. But it says, when he forgave his friends, God restored to him everything. How much? Double. Double. Because the Lord gives, the Lord takes away, and then the Lord gives again. So where are you in this whole process? We're all trusting God for something. We're all dealing with different kinds of tribulation. So what does it come down to? It comes down to trusting the Lord. That he's my savior, that he's my provider, that he knows what I need, that he's always just in time. And see, when I know these truths about him, it gives me hope. Because I'm going to make it. Because Philippians 1.12 says, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion in Christ Jesus. That's the good news. Let's pray. So, Father, we thank you for your word. Our situation is not as harsh as the believers in other nations who are being persecuted and tortured. But we still have our afflictions. And there are levels of affliction and levels of tribulation, but it's all designed to cause us to trust in you. So may our trust be in you. May we not turn to the right nor to the left, but may we follow you with our whole hearts and hold up your word because you're watching over your word to perform it. And at the right time, we'll see your deliverance because you're our savior. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.